Richard Dawkins, welcome to Fritanke podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, you're in Sweden now to participate in a conference on the theme of what is life. We've been discussing that now for three days and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that as well, or rather about the evolution of life. But I would like to start with your new book that is coming out actually these days in Sweden. And that is in English called The Four Horsemen, uh, in Swedish Till den fria tankens försvar. And it is a discussion between you, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. That was recorded a few years ago. Um, what kind of relevance does it have today? Well, these are the so-called four horsemen, and it was the only time we ever met. And we met in Christopher Hitchens's flat in mm. Washington. Uh, my foundation, the Richard Dawkins Foundation, organized that, and we sat for a couple of hours and just talked in a, in a free-for-all way. There was no agenda, there was no chairman... Uh, I suppose I kind of slightly started it off, but apart from that, there was there was no chairman. It worked pretty well. I don't think anybody um, hogged the conversation. It really was a proper free-flowing conversation. Um, as for its relevance today, I'm, I don't think all that much has changed. We Each of us contributed a new essay to the book. Yeah. Uh, and um, to some extent, we reflected on what, what might have changed. Um I, in my own essay, I, I talked about the courage that the atheistic point of view needs. The need you, you you need courage to face up to this immensely complex world and uh, admit to yourself that it is a material construct. It it, it mm. happened through the laws of physics. It doesn't need a, a creator. That requires courage because, on the face of it, it looks as though it ought to have a creator. And I think mm. that's why it took so long for a Darwin to come on the scene, that, that, that the complexity of life seems to beg for a, a creator. and it, It's an act of courage to, to see that it doesn't need to. And I tried to uh, generalize that and say that, that that same courage that Darwin had um, should inspire us to solve the remaining problems that, that we still don't understand, some of yeah. the problems of, of modern physics, for example. Would you be willing to say that it was quite reasonable to believe in God up till Darwin? Well, I used to say that, and, and in some sense I do, I do think that, because, mm. it, 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 as I said, it really did require courage to say anything else. Mm. Uh, a few philosophers, like, for example, David Hume, realized that it was a bad explanation, mm-hmm. that God was a bad explanation, but he, on the other hand, he didn't have a better one. So it was rather left hanging until until Darwin came along, and presumably Hume would have loved Darwin if he'd lived long enough to to to, to read the Origins. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's on the other hand an argument you often hear from religious people. They say, "Okay, if you don't believe in God, how do you then explain this or that?" Uh, you know. Yes, well, we we we, we now can. Yeah, yeah, but well, but the unit, the, the origin of the universe, for example. Yes, yes. So and we just we just need to have the courage that, that Darwin gives us to say. Uh, well, perhaps physics is waiting for its Darwin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, it's also you can have the courage to say that, okay, we don't know that yet, but it's it's just lazy to say it was God to yes. get out of the problem, so yes. to speak. Um, but I'm thinking more of the, how, the de- how the world has developed since you had this conversation about 10 years ago or 12 years ago. How, the, the sort of discussion of 
of a secular attitude is it more needed now than it was when you had this conversation i haven't done the research i'm not a sociologist or a social psychologist mm. i i read opinion polls and uh, the opinion polls suggest that the world is moving towards a less theistic point of view even in america where mm. uh, america is lagging behind western europe in this respect but even in america there's a, a distinct trend in the direction of non-belief in anything supernatural. Yeah, I've I've seen that too, but on the other hand it's becoming more and more dangerous to certain parts of the world to be an atheist. It seems. Yes, you're thinking of the Islamic world. Yes. Uh, well, you know, in Uganda Christian churches ah, yes. want to have yes. death penalty for homosexuals. That is true, yes. Very close to succeed to make that into a law. I don't think they've succeeded yet, but it's quite close. That is true. That's not atheism, but but nevertheless it shows a sort of intolerance. Uh, true. And it's, and it's based on religion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. But I know I I talked to some friends from Bangladesh and they said that when they were like teenagers and said they were atheists, Their friends thought they were a bit crazy, but they didn't really care. But today it is dangerous to say that in the country. And that's yes. an attitude change. Yes. I think I've heard it said that in some Islamic countries, it, it's simply met with incomprehension. I mean, how can yeah. you be an atheist? It's exactly. sort of, it just doesn't enter into their consciousness that this is even an option. Yeah. But countries like Brunei now, for example, are uh, sharpening their Sharia laws, for example. So it seems to be, seems to be more and more dangerous yes. to be a blasphemist. For I think I would hope that this is the last death throes, uh, but maybe I'm being too optimistic there. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, the four horsemen, only three are around today, unfortunately. Hitch died uh, a few years ago. Um, do you see any successors coming up now that sort of take over the role that you sort of started with this kind of conversation? I think there are lots. I, I wouldn't like to name names, but okay. but, but yes, I think I think it's a, it would be invidious to actually um, name names, but I mean, there are yeah. pl- plenty of them. Yeah, because it, it seems like, uh, it seems to be... I can feel in Sweden that there is a growing interest in existential questions in some sense, and some answer them with a religious answer and some with a completely secular answer. But the interest itself is growing, I think, and uh, that is probably good. good. That, that sounds like a good trend. Mm. That's what we see in, Swe- in Sweden, at least. I'd, I'd like to ask you another thing uh, about that. Uh, I... Uh, As a publisher, we publish a lot of science, popular science books, obviously, as you know. And uh, I also feel a growing interest in a certain kind of science that I like to call existential science. And what I mean by existential science is science that says something about what it means to be human. And to that category, I count uh, cognitive science, brain science, evolution, obviously, But also cosmology. It tells something about where we're coming from, where we are going, and so on. Do you think that? Do you think that there is a need among people to have some kind of meaningful narrative, even if it's not religious, so to speak? Yes, I, I, I can't see why you could not have that. It seems to me that that you'd, you'd be a pretty dull person if you didn't have that mm. existential curiosity. I too notice a great amount of interest. I, I do quite a lot of events in literary festivals mm. where 
I suppose traditionally you tend to get novelists going there and people ask them questions like, do you do your best work before breakfast and things like that? Yeah. But uh, people like me also get invited to uh, literary true. festivals and we get huge audiences. And, and I mean, I get the impression we actually sometimes get larger audiences than, than the novelists. <laughs> That's good. Um, and... Uh, and I think it probably is because people are interested in these in these deep questions. Why do I exist? Why does the universe exist? Uh, when's it all going to end? That kind of thing. Could it be that the, the sort of scientific uh, answers to those questions are replacing the, theologic, the theological answers? Yes, they clearly are. I mean, the, um, the, the sorts of questions that were traditionally given theological answers were these great questions of existence and origins. And yeah. uh, science is progressively uh, answering those very questions and giving real answers with real evidence rather than just speculation. Because one one thing that I've been quite involved with in the Swedish debate is the fact that in the Swedish school system, we we obviously don't teach Christianity as a separate thing, but we have to, we teach religion in schools and when it, we teach all the religions. And since 2011, we succeeded to convince the, um, what you call it, school authorities to include secular humanism in this teaching. And our argument was that um, if you only teach the traditional religions and also connect ethics to that, which actually the school books does a lot in Sweden, you teach ethics and religion in the same book, then you will find a lot of kids who do not, who, do, who is not religious, who defines themselves as non-religious, you might risk that they think that, okay, then this is nothing for me. Ethics is not for me. Existential mm. reflection is not for me because that, that's, mm. that belongs to religion. Yeah. And now they have an alternative that also says you can have an ethical existential reflection in a secular framework. Yes, that's a good point. I, I've always been in favor of religious education in the sense of comparative mm. religion. I've always been passionately against teaching children one religion, the religion of their of their parents. I think yeah. it's, very, it's very valuable. And Dan Dennett makes the point, that uh, I think as well, that comparative religion is the best antidote to, uh, to religious faith. And I think you're right that you need to incorporate other ethical systems, non-religious, non-supernatural ethical systems, exactly. otherwise they run away with the wrong idea. Exactly, exactly. I think that's important. And now it's actually included. So now the school books are rewritten in Sweden and has a chapter on secular humanism as well. And they still call it teaching in religion, which is quite irritating. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, you have to take one thing yes. at a time. One I step. think Sweden has a reputation of being one of the most secular countries in the world, doesn't it? Yes, but that's, you know, that's a truth with modification. I mean, we separated church and state year 2000. In France, we separated, oh, yeah. did it 1905. No, I didn't realize. Okay, not se not secular then, but, but, but non-religious. Yes, yes, that's true. And we still have the demand that the king must be a Christian, yes. and, you know. And uh, actually, a very, very weird thing is that we have a law in the Swedish law book, so to speak, that regulates the Swedish church, even though the Swedish church is not a part of the state mm -hmm. anymore. So we have a Swedish law saying how the church should be organized and what it should teach. So our Swedish church does not have a freedom of religion. Yes, they cannot yes. change. Is it also supported by the taxpayer? 
Um, well, that depends on what you mean. And no, not really. It's not a tax, but the tax authorities collect the member fee of the Swedish church on the same sort of blank, bl- blanket that you fill in. So the tax authorities helps the tweed- Swedish church to collect their member fees. Do you, do you mean that the tax authorities know who belongs to what church? Yes. Uh, and they know because you fill in a form? Yes, but you can, you can definitely say that you want to leave it, and then you don't have to pay that. Yes, but if you don't say that, are you automatically uh, put on the list of the church to which you were baptized or something of that sort, yes. like in Germany? Yes, that's that, right. That's, but you, you get included in the church if your parents baptize you, and then you get that, That's ridiculous. I mean, yes. And that, that happens in Germany as well, and, yeah. and you have to opt out. I think you even have to pay to opt out. Really? I think I, I may have got that wrong. Okay, that's, that's really mm. crazy. Yeah, I've, I've always argued that the Swedish church, at least the Swedish church, should send home on the 18th birthday when you get, you know, the, what you call it in English, the, the right to make decisions. When you're 18 in Sweden. Yeah, yes. What do you call that? Uh, well, the voting age or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Swedish church should send a letter home to, to a person and say, uh, fill in this uh, form if you want to be, stay in the church. Otherwise, we take you away automatically. But now it is the opposite. Why do they even know if you've been baptized? I mean, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a, a relevant statistic at all. Well, yes, but, but they use the church to baptize, so they yeah. get you in the system. Mm-hmm. But, but still, I mean, now you have to actively opt out, and I think you should be actively opting exactly. in instead, which yes. is much more mm-hmm. fair. Mm-hmm. The problem is that... Polls shows that if if people made this decision actively, it would be about twenty five percent who would be a member of the Swedish Church, and now it is, I think, sixty five seventy percent. I think um, Ayan Hersi Ali may have made the point that the Christian Church may actually be valuable as a kind of defence against Islam. <laughs> yes, I know she's she said that, and there is a, there is also a Swedish professor of philosophy who says that we should have a state church because religion is so dangerous. You have to control it through the state. But um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think the Swedish church is very it's very secular. It's not representative for how Christianity is around the world. Actually, I mean we have. Uh, women priests, we have same-sex marriages in the church and so on. Most of the world, Christian churches, does not accept that, as you know. Um, Anyway, so so Sweden is not really that secular, but uh, if you ask the ordinary man and woman on the street if he or she believes in God, then it's a quite low percentage that would say yes, that's definitely the case. Um, Right now we have a situation in America where Alabama has taken on an anti-abortion law, you probably read in the yep. news recently, and the, the, the most uh, strong one or, or anti-abortion uh, ever in America, I think, in modern times. Do you think that America is moving towards uh, a, a worse situation for women and abortion? Yes, te- temporarily. I, mean, I, I think um, under Trump and under the Supreme Court justices, which unfortunately go on... Forever. I mean, yeah. um, it's a real it's a real problem in, in America that if you if if a president if, if a rogue president like Trump appoints a young Supreme Court justice, they're stuck with him. I mean, yeah. for decades. Yeah, uh, and uh, and so this is this is a real threat, but it is only temporary. I mean, the the general trend of history mm. is in the right direction, even though there are 
temporary reversals, and obviously Trump is engineering a, a reversal. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it seems to happen in quite many places, in India with the Hindu nationalists yes. and, and, and so on, and Poland and Hungary and so on. How long do you think it will take till, till, till that this populist, nationalist, anti-science trends will turn again to better? I can't answer that. I'm, I'm, I'm a natural mm-hmm. scientist, not a, mm. not a sociologist. No, and no. I mean, even if I was a sociologist, <laughs> I wouldn't put much money <laughs> on it, by the way. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'd like to ask you, you, you have your colleague and friend, I guess, Sam Harris in America, who, who is running a very successful podcast. Uh, he is very much into meditation, spirituality, discussing psychedelic drugs and how it can affect, you know, the consciousness expansion and so on. What, what's your opinion on, on that? I wouldn't care to answer for him, but I suspect that he has suffered from a kind of confusion in people's minds between Buddhism in the religious sense and um what what he's talking about, which is using meditation and drugs as a way of manipulating your own brain physiology in a perfectly mm. sensible scientific way. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's he's a very experienced meditator, and he actually runs classes in, in in meditation, but he doesn't spill over into any of the mystical or supernatural aspects of, of no. any kind of religion, far from it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I, I, I know that. But at the same time, it's interesting because psychedelic science is sort of coming, coming up now. I mean, there is quite a lot of serious scientific research on psychedelic substances like mushrooms and psilocybin and LSD and so on. Do you think that those kinds of substances actually can, um, how to say, Um, be used to enhance our intellectual capabilities. Do you think it's something there that's fascinating? I have never tried any of those substances. I sometimes think it would be interesting to do so, but I never have. So I have no personal experience. I see no reason why physiologically that shouldn't be the case. Mm. They clearly have dramatic effects. So aren't you curious to try? I am curious, and I'm also frightened. And and Mm. so, I mean, I, I, um, I, I have a kind of standing offer from a friend to hold my hand through a through an LSD ex- experience and mm. I'm still contemplating it uh, I took advice from an expert a first cousin of my father who who who's an expert I just died actually um and uh, he advised against it uh mm-hmm. rather to my surprise actually I think he th- he thought that the danger of a bad trip is such that uh, uh I he he wouldn't advise anybody to risk it no I probably it's a matter of the dose. Uh, yes, strong the dose. And there is this. Have you heard about ayahuasca? It's some kind of tea that you drink. Yes, I think I have. Yes, um, and I think I haven't tried it either. But I know that it it doesn't have hallucinatory effects really. But it has some kind of you get an empathy experience which differs from normally. I, I'm also very curious. Yes. That's why I'm asking. I mean, I, the only thing, I, I have tried marijuana and it had absolutely no effect on me, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe you tried too little. Then. Okay. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what is life and evolution. I mean, um, obviously, how life started is still fairly a mystery. Do you agree with that? Yes. But... As soon as evolution kicked in, I'm fascinated by the many different ways that nature solved the same problem in different animals. Uh, 
uh, flying, for example. I know you're thinking a lot about that at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about the different strategies that evolution took on that? Yes, the, uh, the machine code level, it, there's just one universal machine code, which is the DNA protein system, mm. uh, where the DNA code is just about u- universal. And so at, at that bottom level, it is universal. Mm. Once, you get to, once natural selection got going, you started getting things like flying, as you say. Mm. Yes, there have been lots of different solutions to problems like this, the problem of flying, seeing... Um, getting about generally. There are lots and lots of, at the detailed level, solutions to the problem of living. They're all fundamentally solving the same problem, which is passing on DNA uh, and surviving long enough to pass on DNA. But just there are lots and lots of different ways of doing it. Mm. And some of them involve flying, some digging, some swimming, some running, um, some eating other animals, some being eaten and eating plants. Uh, And some uh, by eating your own brain, I know. The <laughs> famous, book, famous American joke, like getting tenure, yes. Exactly. That was on kind of animal. I read it in your ancestor's tale book. Yes. What, what, tell us about this animal. I've forgotten what it is now. I think it's, I think it's a... Um, no, I've, I've I think it's something forgotten. that swims in yeah, the sea. Yeah, it's one of the many animals that, where the larval stage swims about in the surface of the sea. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's a sea squirt. It's a tunicate. Okay. Um, and tunicates generally have a larva that swims about in the sea. It's called a tadpole larva, and it actually looks a bit like a vertebrate. And according to one theory, we vertebrates are descended from the larva really? of a tunicate, of a sea squirt. Mm-hmm. But um, then it settles down, it, it fastens its head to the bottom of the sea <laughs> and, then, and, ter- and turns into a, set, a, a sessile filter-feeding animal, which an adult sea squirt is. And... Um, according to legend, then eats its own brain. <laughs> no longer needs it because it's not swimming around anymore. <laughs> exactly. I think it's so absurd. So it's, it's a wonderful example. But how has nature uh, solved the flying problem in different ways? Can you give us a few examples? Oh, gosh, yes. Well, uh, true flight, um, sort of staying up, up in the air indefinitely, powered flight mm-hmm. has evolved four times. Mm-hmm. Insects, pterosaurs, flying reptiles... Birds, which are also flying reptiles, but different, and mammals in the form of bats. Then there are numerous um, animals, lots of mammals, for example, frogs, snakes, lizards, which glide. Mm. They have they increase the surface area, uh, and um, so glide from tree to tree, always going down, but but in a controlled way. Um, Birds. There are many birds that only occasionally flap and glide or soar using thermals. Thermals are a wonderful source of lift, which um, vultures and other large birds especially exploit. Insects, if you're sufficiently small, you hardly need bother to fly because, because the surface area compared to the weight of the, of the animal is so high that something like a gnat, it does have wings, but mm. you know, it sort of floats around anyway like mm. a like pollen, which floats around, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's just just very small. So the barrier to become a flying animal would have been a, a much smaller barrier to a small animal than to a large animal. Um, some extremely large animals can fly or, or have flown. Um, there was a, an extinct bird, from a fossil from Argentina, which had a wingspan the size of a spitfire, it's hard to imagine that it did much flapping. It, it probably just, just, just glided, probably just gl- glided mm. from, from a height. 
uh, other very large birds behave like al- al- albatrosses have a very large wingspan mm. and they use um, upcurrents from the sea and they use a complicated sort of mixture of gliding and 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 um, gliding into the wind and getting getting lift from that and then gliding downwind um, so yes there are lots and lots of different solutions to the problem of flight if you look at the anatomy of true flyers like bats pterosaurs and birds they do it differently in bats the wing is the entire hand. The, the wing membrane is stretched between all the fingers of the hand mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the feet as well. Mm. Um, in pterosaurs, it's mostly one finger, the fourth finger, the, the, the ring finger, which is enormously enlarged. In birds, and, and again in, t- in pterosaurs, the, the, the membrane stretches to the, to the hind leg as well. In birds, um, the, fe- the feather is a wonderful invention, and feathers provide most of the necessary stiffness. Mm. And so the bird gets by with just having a, a bone, the, the, the whole arm at the front of the wing, and the rest of the surface is provided by the stiffness of the feathers, which means that the wing is not joined up to the hind legs as it is in bats and pterosaurs. Mm. And that means that the bird's l- legs are free. So birds are very powerful walkers and runners, uh, which bats and pterosaurs are not. They're, mm. they're hampered by the fact that the wing is... That the, the leg is encumbered by the wing. I, insects too have, have the, the wing is entirely separate from the from the legs. Hmm. Fascinating. And you said that the, even the eye has uh, evolved. In well, ways. according to according to Ernst Meyer, the eye has evolved forty times at least, forty in, times. independently. Um, n- n- the a, a light sensitive cell would be older than that. Mm. Um, even some protozoa have light sensitive cells, but Optical apparatus, apparatus for making an image, Mm. has evolved many times. Um, The compound eye does it in a totally different way from our camera eye. Our camera eye has a lens which focuses an upside-down image, like a a camera does. Um, Insect compound eyes... um, It's okay. Insofar as compound eyes form, form an image... Um, it's the right way up because they have a it's a sort of hemispherical great big globe that has tubes sticking out in all directions mm-hmm. called omatidia. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever the tube is looking at, I mean, if, if say the, it, the, the top tube is stimulated and then the object moves downwards, then the bottom tube becomes stimulated. Oh. So, so it's, insofar as there's an image, it is, it is the right way up. Um, and then there, there's even a mollusk, a scallop, which has a, a, a parabolic reflector <laughs> eye. Wow. And within each of those cat- categories, like compound eyes and mm. camera eyes, there are numerous independent evolutions. Mm. And as I understand it, the human eye is not at all the best design, so to speak, <laughs> if it had been a design. Yeah, yes. Well, Metaphorically the, speaking, the, of course. The vertebrate eye generally uh, has this curious fact that it's... The, the, the retina is wired backwards, that the, mm. that the wires that connect the photocells to the brain mm. come from the front, and, and, and so they have to run over the surface of the retina and then dive through the retina to get back to the brain. Um, mollusk eyes are not like that. I mean, good mollusk eyes are those of cephalopods, octopuses and squids, mm. and they are camera eyes very like our eyes, except that the retina is the right way round, and that's because of the independent evolution and they have, they, it develops through a different kind of embryology. Mm. 
Okay, one last question about something else. Uh, you have founded something called the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Tell us what, what that is doing. What is that foundation? Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. And I founded that about 10 years ago. Um, a little bit more, actually. Uh, it, the American branch of it, there's a British branch as well, but the American branch of it uh, has merged with the Center for Inquiry, CFI, yeah. in, in America, which is a much larger organization. And so now we, d- we have a joint board and um, some of the things that we do are inherited from both the previous organizations. Um, one that I'm particularly keen on is the Translation Project, which is um, a, a, an undertaking to translate books such as my own books, and we hope others as well, into Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, mm. and Indonesian, the principal languages of the Islamic world, mm. uh, to try to bring science... Um, to the Islamic world. Mm. And the idea is not to publish printed books and make money. The idea is to make available PDFs Mm. that can be downloaded free. Mm. So we make no money from this. Um, The the inspiration from this came from the, as you know, the uh, astoundingly large number of downloads of the Arabic, of an illegal, bootlegged Arabic translation of The God Delusion. I think 13 million downloads, you know more than me. Um, And so that really inspired us to say there's something going on here. Mm. Um, um, There's some, there's a possible inroad into into the Islamic world. I can tell you actually that the the guy in Stockholm who I go and cut my hair with, he's an Arabic man, and he told me that he had read your book in Arabic and was very fascinated by it. And he said, I couldn't tell my wife I'm reading this, so he's keeping it quiet, keeping it secret, I mean. But he, he's read it and he liked it a lot. <laughs> well, a PDF is a lot easier to keep secret from your family than a, than a printed <laughs> yes. book. Okay, uh, Richard Dawkins, thank you very much for being in this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.